You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner. This is the second volume of The Karma of Untruthfulness. This is Lecture 16, given in Dornach on the 7th of January, 1917. And it is the third lecture in the second volume, numbered Lecture 16. These lectures on the theme of current events are particularly suited to helping us realize what we can gain for our soul by striving to acquaint ourselves with spiritual knowledge. I have often stressed that this spiritual knowledge must not remain merely theoretical. We must make it come alive by filling it with those hallowed feelings and other impulses which belong to it so that it can give to our souls that impetus and mood which will enable us as scientists of the spirit to relate to events in the human realm in a manner differing from that of someone who is not a spiritual scientist. We have reflected in various ways on how individual human beings belong to particular nations, nationalities, But what the individual bears within him that belongs to mankind as a whole, that part of him which is not specialized and individualized with the characteristics of a particular nation, it is of this that spiritual science helps us to become fully aware. For the main content of anthroposophical spiritual science is valid for every individual human being, regardless of any differences among various groups, Indeed, even the national differences are seen differently from an anthroposophical point of view, since, in contrast to the non-anthroposophical point of view, we are able to consider objectively what constitutes these differences. The various aspects can be seen objectively. We are familiar with the threefold nature of our soul in that it consists of the sentient soul, the intellectual or mind soul, and the consciousness soul, all three being filled, spiritually permeated, enlivened by our egohood. When the Italian folk soul works into individual human beings, it is the sentient soul that is influenced by the forces and impulses with which it works. In the French individual it is the intellectual or mind soul, and in the British individual the consciousness soul through which the folk soul works. For the folk souls of Central Europe, it is the ego that is receptive, and for those of the Slav peoples, the spirit self. If we could fill ourselves with an understanding of this, we should no longer be tempted to form judgments in the way in which they are so frequently formed. A certain person heard this and was furious because he understood anthroposophical spiritual science to be saying that in the German nation the folk soul works through the ego, as if this was something higher than a folk soul working through the consciousness soul, 
This was his own misunderstanding. For in spiritual science, different aspects of knowledge are viewed objectively, side by side. The folk souls have tasks to do, and to accomplish them, they have to work into their nations. But as regards the working of the folk souls in human souls, we must realize that in our fifth post-Atlantean period, a certain development has to take place. And those who are drawn toward anthroposophical spiritual science ought to feel themselves in the forefront of this development. How does the folk soul work down into the human soul and mind? To start with, we have to note that this working is subconscious and only partially rises up into consciousness. The individual human being feels that he belongs to one nation or another. On the whole, the folk soul works on the individuality via the maternal principle. It is the maternal principle that is embedded in the realm of the folk soul. The effect of the paternal principle is to detach the individual as a physical and etheric being belonging to nature from the group. I have frequently discussed this in past years. In the Christian world view, this is even expressed in the Gospels. This too I discussed some time ago. As things are today, it is in the first instance through the blood that the folk soul works into the individual and also through what corresponds in the etheric body to blood. Naturally, this is more or less an animal impulse and it remains at the animal level for by far the greater part of mankind today. Through his blood, the individual belongs to a particular nation. The mysterious forces and the impulses working in the blood are very different to describe, since they are extraordinarily complex and manifold. Suffice it to say that they lie beneath the surface of consciousness. People are far more conscious in all those aspects of their makeup which belong to mankind as a whole, irrespective of national differences. That is why the pathos, the passion, the affectation of belonging to a particular nationality bursts forth with a kind of elemental force. People do not attempt to apply logical reasons or judgments when it is a question of specifying or sensing their attachment to their nationality. It is his blood and his heart which is influenced by his blood that bind the individual to his nationality and let him live within it. The impulses in question are subconscious, and it is a good step forward if we can at least succeed in recognizing the subconscious nature of this situation. It is important, especially for those who are approaching spiritual science, if they can undergo this development in themselves and come to feel about these things in a way that differs from the way the rest of mankind feels. When people who do not belong to spiritual science are asked what binds them to their nation, they will indeed, they, they must answer, my blood. This is the sole idea which they are capable of forming about their sense of belonging to a particular nationality. 
A student of spiritual science, however, ought gradually to reach a point at which he is able to give not this but a different answer. If he cannot gradually develop to a point where this different answer is possible, this means that he sees spiritual science as something purely theoretical, not practical and living. Someone who does not study spiritual science can only say, I am connected to my nationality through my blood. Through my blood I defend what lives in my nation. It is my blood that obliges me to identify with my nationality. One who does study spiritual science, however, must answer, I am connected with my nationality through my karma, for this is a part of my karma. As soon as concepts of karma are brought into the question, the whole relationship becomes much more spiritual. Someone who does not follow spiritual science will summon his blood to account for the pathos, the impulsiveness of everything he does as a member of a particular nation. But someone who has developed through spiritual science will feel connected to one nation or another through his karma. The matter becomes spiritual. Externally, such a person might act in the same way. Even if he feels this more spiritual aspect, he might do the same things. But inwardly he will feel spiritually. His feeling will be quite different from that of a person who feels his links with his nation purely at an animal level. Here you see one of the points at which belonging to spiritual science changes the soul, brings a new mood into the soul. But at the same time you see how much the general consciousness of our time is lagging behind what could already be known by those who want to know it. In the general consciousness of our time, the individual's attachment to a particular nation can only be seen as something that lives in the blood or in that which is not at all of the blood, but which is regulated in connection with the blood, and out of this perception of the blood. A far freer view of nationality will gain ground once the whole matter is viewed as a matter of karma. Then certain delicate concepts will arise for someone who perhaps attaches himself consciously to a certain nation, thus bringing about a change of karma. But however we view the matter, whether in the less complete sense shared by the greater part of mankind today, or in the more complete sense that can be attained through the study of spiritual science, nevertheless the fact remains that the general situation of the world today means that mankind is differentiated into groups. Nothing could make us more painfully aware than current events that this differentiation into groups is still for the most part prevalent. In addition, this differentiation into groups is mingled with quite other conditions and facts because it is to be even more difficult for human hearts and souls to gain an understanding of the reasons for the painful enmities, the painful disharmonies that have arisen amongst mankind today. In short, we are touching on something pervaded by tragedy, which should have nothing to do with ordinary logic or ordinary superficial judgments. 
For whether these things are seen as a matter of blood or as a matter of karma, blood lies below and karma above logic. As a result, what we have been discussing must of necessity result in conflicts in human coexistence, and these conflicts must be seen to be necessary. To believe that these conflicts can be judged in accordance with those concepts that apply to individual human beings must lead to the greatest errors. The widespread discussion of conflicts among nations, in the same terms as those applicable to conflicts between individuals, is the gravest mistake. I have already said that concepts such as justice and freedom apply to individual human beings. To claim them as parts of a program for nations proves from the start a lack of knowledge about the characteristics of nations and a lack of will to enter into the question of national characteristics. For those who understand these things and are capable through spiritual knowledge of seeing what is factually and naturally necessary, there is something paradoxical about the belief expressed in so many publications today for it is comparable with the shark who makes a pact with the little fishes which he normally eats, saying, It is utterly inhumane to eat little fishes. I shall cease doing so. By saying this he is condemning himself to death, for it happens to be the way of the world that sharks eat little fish. It is necessary to come to a profound sense for the fact that it is not possible to understand the world without seeing the reality of the necessary conflicts leading to all that is tragic in the world. And to believe that something like paradise is possible on the physical plane shows a total lack of comprehension of the peculiarities of the physical plane. Paradise does not exist on earth. There can be no comprehension among those who strive to realize the new Jerusalem as a utopia on earth or who, like the social democrats, want to bring about some other satisfactory solution. There is a profound law which says that human beings, insofar as they live here on the physical plane, can only reach a satisfactory view of reality if they are aware that higher worlds also exist, and that they are connected in their souls with these higher worlds. Only if we understand that we are citizens of higher worlds can a satisfactory view be attained. Therefore, when spiritual consciousness was extinguished, a time had to come when mankind could no longer understand why so much disaster, so many conflicts are present on the earth. These conflicts can only be resolved when we feel ourselves not only to be living in the physical world, but also in the spiritual world. Then we may begin to grasp that Just as man cannot always be young, but has also to grow old, so there has to be a breaking down of what was once built up, conflict and destruction, as well as creation. When you understand this, you also understand that conflicts have to arise between groups of human beings. These conflicts are the tragic element of world events, and they must be seen to be something tragic. In order to conjure up before your soul the living concept, the living idea that I am trying to describe, 
let me remind you of a rather caustic remark once made by the poet Friedrich Hebel. He was, as you know, a genius of a somewhat ponderous cast, one who wrote rather laboriously, despite a considerable fund of worldly humor. I told you on another occasion that he was not at all far from a view of the world which would have accorded with spiritual science. Thus he once jotted down in his notebook the following theme. Plato, reincarnated, takes his place in a secondary school where the teacher is dealing with the subject of Plato. He cannot understand a word of what Plato was supposed to have said, and the teacher scolds him severely for this. Hevel wanted to work this idea into a dramatic episode. He never actually did so. But you see that he did indeed consider bringing the idea of reincarnation into a play. Hebel was a contemporary of Grillparzer, and I knew him. As I said, Hebel was a somewhat somber, melancholy genius. But after he had seen Grillparzer's plays titled The Golden Fleece, titled Thou Shalt Not Lie, and titled A Dream is Life, and so on, he said, and this is most interesting, Grillparzer depicts tragic conflicts, but only those of which it can be said that if people were clever enough to see through the situations, it would be possible to resolve them in the end. According to Hebel, the tragic circumstances in Grillparzer's plays only come about because the characters are not clever enough to see through the tragic situations. This, he says, is not really tragic. Real tragedy among human beings only comes about when those involved are as clever as anything, and yet none of their cleverness and caution can help them, so that conflict becomes inevitable. What Hebel, as a dramatist, calls real tragedy is something that we ought to introduce as a concept into human evolution, human destiny so that we do not continue forever to form the naive judgment that one thing or another might have been avoided. Situations which lead to conflicts, such as the present one, cannot be avoided. And all those declamations about blame are totally out of place in face of a truly penetrating judgment. It was, for this purpose, that I arranged these lectures which we have been conducting over the past days and weeks. I arrange them in order to demonstrate clearly that even in the case of an event such as the Opium Wars, it is impossible to speak of blame in the way blame is meant in situations involving individual human beings. Concepts such as guilt, freedom, and so on, which can be applied to individual human beings, cannot be applied to souls living on other planes, and folk souls do not live on the physical plane but only work into the physical plane through individual souls. Their abode lies in other spheres, on other planes. Such things are sensed nowadays by some isolated individuals, but they are not understood when we judge events on the basis of concepts which are customary today, instead of making the effort to take into account the actual evidence to stand up today as a member of a nation and pronounce judgment on other nations in a manner that is only justified when referring to individuals proves nothing except one's own backwardness in the ability to judge. 
It is, though, an historical necessity, because certain statesmen are backward in relation to what could be known today, that this backwardness, this ignorance is brought to bear even in the most terrible historical documents, as a result of which infinite rivers of blood will flow. On the other side stands the possibility of stressing again and again for those who want to hear it, that the progress and salvation of mankind depend on finding judgments from the realms of spiritual life. There is indeed a sense in some quarters for that which is necessary as a basis for judgment, but it cannot be brought into consciousness. I shall give you an example, for if I may say so, spiritual science will only be absorbed into our very flesh and blood if we learn to observe ordinary, everyday reality from the viewpoint of spiritual science. In England, in the 70s and 80s of the 19th century, the historian Professor Seeley, S-E-E-L-E-Y, was active. What he taught was in many cases decisive for what later came to live in many souls. Seeley was perhaps the first English historical imperialist. His imperialism was historical and his history imperialistic for he viewed British history as it had developed over the centuries from the point of view that the trend had always been toward the foundation of the great British Empire, which now covers one quarter of the habitable surface of the earth. His lectures appeared in print in the seventies and were frequently reprinted. Sometimes there was a new edition every year, for he had very many students. In these lectures he sought to gather up all the separate facts which made the British Empire what it is today. He saw it as something in the nature of divine providence that all the different pieces came together in the way in which they did as a result of different impulses. He even asks, how did it all happen? And answers expressly, no individuals decided all these things, performed all these actions at just the right moment, which joined yet another portion to the British Empire with the aim of creating the greatest imperium that had ever existed. No, all this happened in earlier times as though by instinct. The various parts came together by instinct, and in Seeley's view there is a divine and spiritual order in the way they did so. Now, he says, it is our task to lift up into consciousness what has hitherto taken place instinctively, and to round off what arose thus instinctively with our consciousness into an imperium such as has never existed on the earth before. He saw it as his task as an imperialistic historian consciously to penetrate what had come together unconsciously. Seeley intends, as it were, to bring into the present consciousness of the fifth post-Atlantean period all that contributed to the rise of the British Empire out of the still atavistic forces belonging to the laws of the fourth post-Atlantean period. But as we have pointed out, it was not only reasoned intellectual thinking which took hold of the instinctive coming together of the different parts. As I have told you, during the final decades of the nineteenth century, Certain members of occult streams began, not with ordinary consciousness, but with occult consciousness, to expand this British Empire, 
by placing before their souls and the souls of their pupils maps which showed what still had to come about if the British Empire was to beam its forces over the whole world. In these occult circles the following idea was consciously cultivated. The fifth post-Atlantean period belongs to the English-speaking peoples. Based on this, all the arrangements were carried out and all the details elaborated. No doubt the Regius professor was not aware of this, but others were, and used all of it consciously in their impulses. This needs to be recorded. We shall speak more about what it was that they were aware of. But when people are not aware of something, it nevertheless creeps into their soul and occupies them in a certain way. Thus, in our time, an extraordinary collaboration came about between something occult, hovering in the background and pulling strings, and something of which people are unaware, but which lives in the forefront of events on the physical plane. One must know such things if one wants to form judgments in the proper way. Over the last few weeks I have quoted a number of peculiar incidents, such as the matter of the title Almanac of Madame de Thebes, and others. No doubt you remember. Now, consider the following quite objectively, without taking sides in any way. It is something extraordinary even for somebody who only thinks in the ordinary way. But for those who observe spiritual connections, it is something that demands more than mere consideration. It demands to be meditated upon and taken into one's impulses. Is it not extraordinary that as early as the 90s of the 19th century an English book should have been published that was written by three editors of the Times and given the title The Great War of 189?" The timing was handled in a somewhat dilettante fashion. Though the date suggested is rather earlier, the reference is to the present war. This book contains a small error, for we are told that the war will break out as a result of the assassination of the Bulgarian prince Ferdinand and that it will then escalate into the European conflagration covering the world. What is foretold in detail about this European conflagration covering the world is remarkably prophetic and has been confirmed in the main by subsequent events. We can truly say that the book's greatest error is the confusion between the Bulgarian Prince Ferdinand and Franz Ferdinand of Austria, and the placing of the assassination in Sofia instead of Sarajevo. I consider that there is a significance which should not be underestimated in the appearance of a book in 1892 which is so remarkably accurately portrays which so remarkably accurately portrays a future event. Only by endeavoring to form judgments which are not abstract but founded on what actually exists can we develop the capacity to see the hidden configuration of things. Naturally enough, even those who were able to see what was to come misplaced certain details. This is inevitable when speaking about such things. It is not always possible to foresee everything accurately but we ought to ponder on the fact that there were people at that time who had such strong reasons for going into these matters that they even went as far as publication. I am telling you all this 
especially in connection with all that we are considering, so that you can sharpen your capacity for forming judgments. It is essential to have the will to look facts in the face and see how they relate to one another. In earlier lectures here, I said, in the fifth post-Atlantean period, we can only make progress if we strive, on the one hand, to achieve imagination, and on the other to let the facts speak for themselves. All preconceived judgments are doomed increasingly to become empty phrases. Least of all can abstract thinking, as opposed to thinking that is bound up with actual facts, lead to judgments about the tragic conflicts in the world, the tragic play of impulses which work in the way I have described. There exists today a knack linked with world history, a knack of saying things which seem very convincing to many people, but which in fact reveal nothing on which it would be worth basing a judgment. Let us consider a judgment such as the following. Those in power in the British Empire did not want war. To back this up, suitable correspondence, telegrams, letters, and so forth, about all sorts of proposals for conferences and so on, are quoted. People who judge, not on the basis of reality but abstractly, can indeed be convinced by these things, because the material available to back up such statements can sound very convincing. But for a judgment to be valid, it must not only be convincing or correct in the abstract, it must live in reality. It is perfectly possible, under certain circumstances, to prove that those in power in the British Empire, or rather those who mattered, did not want a war, and with such proof the greatest impression can be made in the whole of the periphery. In order to prove it, I say, prove, it is not even necessary to speak a direct untruth, yet in reality it remains an untruth. Why? Because it is in fact true and can be proved to be true, and yet this truth is not worth a snap of the fingers and is totally irrelevant. You may be certain that those in power in the British Empire would very much have preferred to prevent the conflict insofar as the British Empire is a participant. But what those who matter wanted to achieve by means of the war, this they certainly desired with every ounce of energy at their disposal. Had it been possible to achieve this without a war, they would obviously greatly have preferred it. And from the beginning it was not at all out of the question that these aims might have been achieved by means other than war. To do this it would have been necessary to create some sort of substitute, some international arrangement by means of which representatives of the various states could have come together to decide certain matters. If you take care to ensure in advance that you have a majority in such a body, then of course you can achieve your aims without a war, as long as the minority are prepared to go along with you. So you see, in the last resort, it is not a matter of whether one wanted to wage or prevent war, but of what one's aims were in the first place. And the objective observer cannot fail to see that the aim was indeed the one about which I have given you a number of hints. It is only possible to hint. As always, I beg you to take into account that I am not passing a judgment on moral grounds, 
but placing the concept of tragedy on the scales. I am saying that when conflicts are tackled by means of battles, when much blood is spilt, this stems from the tragedy of those conflicts. In contemplating this tragedy externally, we must of course have the will to be affected by these things in a way that differs somewhat from the ordinary. How often do we hear a share of the blame for this war must be laid at the door of those opinions, sensations and feelings which such people as Treitschka and Bernardi spread among the German people. It can be quite grotesque, for the names of these writers have often enough been cited as belonging to deceivers, even by people who are convinced in the most honest way that this hits the nail on the head. Sometimes Nietzsche is included, sometimes others as well. There is much to be learned by taking into account what such things are based on, in what I might call, quote, the realm of what is true, close quote. But before going into this from the spiritual point of view, for much can be learned about the spiritual realm by attending to ordinary things, let me draw your attention to the way in which just such phenomena as the German historian Treitschke can illustrate for us everything that is so tragic in human evolution. The only thing is that one must not make judgments of an utterly superficial kind. Had I been inclined to make judgments of a superficial nature, I should for some time now certainly have looked upon Treitschke as a social monster. I only met him once, at a time when he was already totally deaf. You wrote your questions on scraps of paper, and he then replied. When I was introduced to him, he asked, Where are you from? I wrote down that I was an Austrian. He replied, Well, well, he was loud-spoken, since he could hear nothing. Austrians are either geniuses or rascals, one or the other, and so forth. With Treitschka, it was always like this. If you did not want to count yourself a genius, you had had it. He was a vivacious man, with considerable depth of character, and he often expressed himself in sharply defined terms. He wrote a much-cited history of the German people. It is quoted in a certain way, but it could easily be quoted in another way, too. For anyone who wanted a collection of anti-German vulgarities could just copy them straight from Treitschke. However, this is not what people do. Instead, they seek out passages which are far less frequent than those in which Treitschke tells his people the truth about themselves. They seek out passages which are written, so they think, in a, quote, Prussian or militaristic manner, close quote. In this connection, I want to introduce you to a rather interesting judgment. It stems from a man who is quite justified in forming it, because he, too, was an historian. He was a particularly in, he was also particularly interested in Treitschke's definite antipathy toward more recent history and developments in England. Treitschke certainly entertained this antipathy, and it soon became obvious when you got to know him. This historian, who knew Treitschke well, wrote that Treitschke's dislike of modern England was based partly on historical and partly on moral grounds, for, quote, Britain's world predominance outrages him as a man almost as much as it outrages him as a German. It outrages him because of its immorality, its arrogance, 
and its pretentious security, and not without justice. Close quote. Steiner again. Please note this. Quote, he delineates English policy throughout the 18th and 19th centuries as aimed consistently at the repression of Prussia. So soon as English politicians discovered the true nature of that state and divined the great future reserved for it by destiny, had not England been Prussia's treacherous but timid enemy in 1864 and 1866 and again in 1870, 71 and above all in 1874, 75, Steiner again, this is what this historian says in his discussion of Treitschke's antipathy toward England. The strongest point he makes in Treitschke's favor is his, quote, conviction, which becomes more intense as the years advance, that Britain's world predominance is out of all proportion to Britain's real strength and to her worth or value, whether that worth be considered in the political, the social, the intellectual, or the moral sphere, close quote. Steiner continues, he continues, quote, It is the detestation of a sham. That which Treitschke hates in England is what Napoleon hated in England, a pretentiousness, an overweening middle-class self-satisfaction, which is not really patriotism, not the high and serious passion of Germany in 1813 and 1870, but an insular, narrow conceit. In fact, the emotion enshrined in that most vulgar of all national hymns, Rule Britannia. Close quote. Steiner continues. He goes on. Quote, but Treitschke is a seldom witty, though often grossly, if unintentionally offensive. He is as unable as Heine to see anything fine in the English character. Close quote. Steiner continues. You see, this is another judgment about Treitschke. And while we are just discussing this historian, let me read to you a judgment he formed about someone else, much maligned Bernardi. Quote, but what marks out this work, close quote, Steiner again, the book in question is the one which is constantly quoted these days as being particularly abominable. Quote, from all others of the same kind, giving it something of the distinction of a really epoch-making book, is that it represents a definite attempt made by a German soldier to understand not merely how Germany could make war upon England most effectively, but why Germany ought to make war upon England. Close quote. Steiner again. All this is written about Treitschke and Bernardi by the English professor Cram. Readers aside, spelled C-R-A-M-B. End of readers aside who from his own point of view could be called the English Treitschke. If you delve into the matter, you will find an extraordinary similarity between the tone of Cram and that of Treitschke, for Cram equally is utterly preoccupied with making clear that the British Empire must dominate the world and that everything must be done to bring this about. You could say that he speaks about England in the way Treitschke speaks about Germany allowing, of course, for the differences between an Englishman and a German. Here you see how one of two men, each of whom, speaking from his own point of view, must needs say the opposite of the other, is nevertheless capable of appreciating what the other says. In a certain sense, a point had been reached at which what had to be laid aside 
could indeed be laid aside in order to come to what is above the individual and belongs to history. It is therefore an extremely depressing relapse, a backward step for people, to find that now, even in the most weighty documents, judgments come to expression which are utterly inapplicable. There is really no need to go at all far in order to find tangible truths. But to do so, one needs the keen sense, which today can only be maintained through some connection with spiritual science. On another front, there is something equally grotesque. The Russian plan to gain possession of the Dardanelles and Constantinople has existed and been admitted for centuries. Yet at the same time, the Russians claim to be entirely blameless, absolutely blameless. Here, in an historical document of the first water, the Tsar's decree that has recently been going round the world, we have the juxtaposition once again. We are absolutely blameless, but we mean to conquer, yet we are blameless. In Russia, too, people have not always held the opinions they hold today. Take Kropotkin, for instance. In 1910, he published the book titled The Tasks of the Russian Army. In this book, there is a remarkable passage which those who speak of Russia's great blamelessness could do well to mark and digest. It says, quote, If Russia does not bring to an end her interference in something foreign to her, yet of vital interest to Austria, then a war over the question of Serbia can be expected to break out in the 20th century between Russia and Austria, close quote. Steiner again. The Russian general Kuropatkin, excuse me, I pronounced it Kropotkin before, readers aside, that's incorrect. It's Kuropatkin, and the readers aside. The Russian general Kuropatkin wrote this in 1910. Of course, he had in mind what existed on the Russian side that could lead to a war with Austria over the Serbian conflict. The question now arises, why is the truth being so distorted at present? The answer is that something has got to be said, yet it is not as easy as all that to speak the truth. I hinted at this yesterday. The things that are said are intended to spread a fog over the truth so as to distract people's attention from the truth. That is why arguments are chosen which will have an immediate sentimental appeal for those who lack the will to get to the bottom of things. I'm going to read that sentence again. That is why arguments are chosen which will have an immediate sentimental appeal for those who lack the will to get to the bottom of things. If only people could come more and more to understand above all the full significance of the many unconscious or subconscious untruths. I have often pointed out that it is no excuse to say that one believes something just because so and so said it. Of course, I do not mean that many people do not believe in what they are saying, but this is not the point. These things work in the world. And those who make statements have a duty to take the trouble to find out the truth. Merely believing something is not enough. Someone might speak quite truly when he says that he wanted to prevent the war. But this truth is not worth a fig in view of the fact that he intended to use other means instead to achieve his desired aim, the aim he is striving for with all his might. 
To reverse the truth in this way, whether unconsciously or subconsciously, is something much worse than an untruth, even though it appears to be the truth. This is now the immensely difficult karma of mankind, that people do not feel in duty bound to pursue the actual real truth and truthfulness that lives in the facts. Indeed, at the very opposite of this, seems to have started to rule the world and to be all set to do so ever increasingly. External deeds are always the consequence of what lives in mankind in the way of thought. They are the consequence of untruthfulness, which may indeed appear in the guise of truth because it can be, in quotes, proved, though only superficially. What lives in the judgments of human beings can become, on another plane, the thundering cannon, excuse me, the thundering of cannon and the spilling of blood. There is certainly a connection between the two. The conclusion we have to draw from this is that we must enter ever more deeply into the facts, that we must develop a sense which can lead us to see in the appropriate places those things which can really throw light and reveal what is essential. The end of Lecture 16